Hey folks, it's JR. We are back for another episode of Echoes of Shannon Street Case File. It's going to be episode 34. I'm cold. Before we get started now, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Jump down in the description, hit the link so you can start listening to the podcast, buy a copy of the book, copy of the documentary, go to my Facebook site or my website. We're going to do things a little different. I've made a command decision, as terrifying as that may be. We're going to discontinue the negotiations. You've still got several hours of it left and unfortunately it's just a regurgitation of what we've been listening to and we're not going to really get anything out of it since they're only touching on the same three or four topics and Lindbergh is not going to talk to them or at least not in a significant manner that we're going to learn anything from. What we're going to do this episode we're going to look at the negotiation log that'll cover that time period that we're not going to listen to. We're going to listen to a statement from a lieutenant with the negotiators who was called in off the sick board to help them out. And then that'll probably cover this episode. What we'll do after this is we're going to stick to the radio transmissions because they'll go a little bit quicker and you'll actually get something out of that. Now, before we get started, we're going to listen to a clip from the documentary Shannon Street Echoes Under a Blood Red Moon. It's going to be Tim Heldorfer. He was West Charlie Shift at the time, but later on became a member of the TAC unit and then a longtime homicide investigator. So, enough of the introductions. Let's go on and we'll listen to what uh, Tim has to say about the TAC unit. Back in those days, and even when I went to the TAC unit, we did not have high-tech, fancy equipment. My shotgun, I took a hose clamp and rigged my flashlight to it so I would have a light. Now they're built in with lasers. We, we didn't have that equipment in those days. And when the TAC unit went in, they had their flashlights tied to the end of their weapons. And so when you go into a house and you identify, how do you identify friend or foe? facial recognition. You see a guy, friend, bad guy, you shoot him. Where'd the bullet go? It's in the hand, right where the light is. That's why they were all shot in the head. Continuation, page eight. Time, 14, 56 hours, that's 2.56 p.m. January 12, 1983, incident. An anonymous male black called MPD Communications and stated he had been in the house on Shannon last night when the situation began, but had escaped before more police arrived. He stated there were four black males still inside the house per Lieutenant Turner. 1510, that's 3.10 p.m., male black Eddie Carr Jr. 2215 heard, which heard, that would tell you that that's just a few, maybe a block or so down the street, gave information to officer as to who might be left in the house. 
15.32 hours, tape 9, side 2 starts. 16.02 hours, tape 10, side 1 starts. 16.29 hours, tape 10, side 2 starts. 17.10 hours, tape 11, side 1 starts. During this time, negotiators attempted to continuously to talk to Lindbergh without any response. 17.34 hours, that's 5.34 in the evening. Information from TAC Observer, it appears that there is a small fire of some sort inside the house. 17.35, Negotiator Shotwell attempts to communicate with Lindbergh, no response. 17.40 hours, tape 11, side 2 on. 18.10 hours, tape 12, side 1 on. 18.40 hours, tape 12, side 2 on. 19.10 hours, which is 7.10 p.m., tape 13, side 1 on. Also, electricity cut off to the house. Can't believe they waited this long to cut the electricity to the house. It's amazing. 1912 hours, Negotiator Stepter begins attempting to talk to Lindbergh over Bullhorn. No response. 1940 hours, tape 13, side 1 on, shot well back on Bullhorn. 1950 hours, Negotiator's report hearing some movement inside the house. First movement in house since light spotted at 1734 hours. 1957 hours, that's 7.57 p.m., Stepter begins talking on Bullhorn again. 20.05 hours, tape 14, side 1 on. 2018 hours, Stepter reports no sound or movement in house. 20.31 hours, still no response. And then 20.34 hours, it looks like it says negotiator Douglas is back on the bullhorn. This is going to be the statement of Lieutenant William H. Thomas. This is relative to the hostage situation 2239 Shannon, occurring January 11, 1983. Lieutenant Thomas, on January 12, and that says 1982, obviously that is incorrect. On January 12, 1983, did you have an occasion to go to 2239 Shannon in regards to a hostage situation? Yes, sir, I did. Explain how this came about. On this date, I was off on sick time with a broken shoulder. However, my wife was contacted by telephone and told that a chief had requested my presence at the scene of the hostage situation on Shannon. Upon learning of this order, I immediately went to the location and reported to Chief Fred Warner. Are you a member of the hostage negotiation team? Yes, I am. Was there any specific instruction or assignment given to you after arriving on the scene? Chief Warner and Captain Adair, who was also on the scene, advised me that we would relieve the supervisors of the negotiation team and would stay on the scene until further notice. The writer then read all the logs as to what had happened prior to my arrival 
and got an update as to what position we were in as far as negotiations were concerned. I'm sure that uh, update wasn't very pleasant. After going over this information, I asked Cap Maydare what type of device we had for listening to what Lindbergh Sanders or any of his associates or anyone within the house was saying. He advised me he had a parabolic mic borrowed from one of the radio stations. However, no sound had been heard quite some period of time. At this time, I suggested that we implant a microphone either in one of the windows or underneath the house to see if we could ascertain if there was any movement or sound coming from within. He advised me we had no means at this time, and I suggested contacting organized crime to borrow some equipment that I was familiar with that I felt would work for the purpose desired. We also discussed this with Chief Fred Warner, and it was decided to contact organized crime. At this time, I called Captain John Talley, advised him the type of listening device needed, and he advised he had one of he had one, and that if I would call Sergeant J.C. Kellum, he would get the mic to him and send him to the Shannon Street address to assist in negotiations. This was at approximately 9 or 9.15 p.m. It took approximately 30 minutes for Sergeant Kellum to arrive, and after getting on the scene and conferring with Chief Warner, the rider along with Sergeant Kellum went to the command post to see where the best place to put the mic and also to obtain cover from the TAC unit while installing this mic. It was also learned that one of the radio stations had given a mic to Sergeant Hester, and I believe... Page 2. This continuation of his answer, and oh, by the way, when they mentioned Sergeant Hester, that is, that sergeant is no relation to Bobby Hester, the officer that's being held hostage. They advised they had not really been able to pick up any good sounds, and it was decided to place the mic that Sergeant Kellum had on the west side as close to the front as possible. Now, the west side, if you remember from the crime scene photos, that's going to be on the side of the house closest to the duplex. If you remember the little brick duplex that uh, Parker, Steve Parker, was in for quite a while. The west side would be, oh, if you remember where the oak tree is out front, the oak tree is closer to the west side of the house. The oak tree's on the north side, but it would be closer to that west side where that uh, there's a little smaller driveway by the duplex. The rider returned to the command post at Shannon School, and Sergeant Kellum and members of the TAC unit continued to put the mic in. After arriving back at Shannon School and advising Chief Warner and Cap Maydare as to what actions had been taken, the rider then went to the location on the west side of the house in question to assist Sergeant Kellum and to maintain communications with Chief Warner to keep him apprised of the situation as it developed. When I arrived on the scene, Sergeant Kellum, who had the only listening device, which was a T-12 receiver with earphone plug, advised me he had heard voices and that the voice appeared to him to be that of Lindbergh Sanders. 
He advised me he identified this voice by having heard the transmissions from the previous night on the police radio. He indicated that it appeared Sanders was talking to no one in particular, just continued to rant and rave. The writer contacted Chief Warner and advised him that we could hear a male black thought to be Lindbergh Sanders, and we continued to monitor. The writer took turns to Sergeant Kellum listening, and during the time I was listening, I heard Sanders talking and saying he was hurt and that he didn't want anything from the negotiators and asked someone, do you understand, motherfucker? And apparently got no response and said, if you understand, roll your eyes, you son of a bitch. At this point, the writer felt perhaps he was talking to the police officer and relayed this information to Chief Warner. This was sometime between 11.30 and 11.45 p.m. approximately. Upon talking to Chief Warner, the writer asked him to contact Lieutenant Tucson as I felt there was a piece of equipment and security that we could incorporate with our listening device so that we could record some of the sounds being heard from within the residence. The writer went back to the listening along with Sergeant Kellum and at one point heard another male black respond to a question from Lindbergh Sanders. However, his response was spoken so low that it was inaudible. However, you could tell it was a different voice from the one we'd been monitoring. We also asked Patrolman Cockrell to listen at this point to see if he could possibly identify the voice. However, he felt it was also another male black with very low voice, but his statement was inaudible. The writer continued to hear Lindbergh Sanders say various things. At one point, he appeared to become nauseated and threw up and also used the restroom either to wash his hands and other purposes, as you could hear the commode flush and water running. He was also heard to say, I'm bleeding, apparently directing this to no one in particular. My continuation of his answer. The writer during all this kept Chief Warner appraised of the situation and also gave him some information to pass along to the negotiators in an attempt to get Sanders to talk, to talking. The negotiator did ask him about the safety of the people in the house. Did he need any clothes? Did he need any food? However, they could not make out any response. We could hear him saying, you ain't got nothing I need. I got what y'all want. He continued to rant and rave and apparently addressing his statements to no one in particular. We also heard him say that he had water and if they threw tear gas in the house, he could take the water to take care of the tear gas. The writer could also hear him clicking something that sounded like a revolver being cocked and uncocked. He then went through several periods where there was, would be absolutely no sound coming from within the house, and we could hear dogs barking outside, which let us know our mic was working correctly, but we did not hear anyone cough, sneeze, or make any human sound. At 1.28 in the a.m., the writer overheard Sanders responding to the negotiating team after they asked him did he need any clothes, warm soup, or anything like that. That my brother is dead, my daddy is dead, and the devil is dead, and this son of a bitch don't have no heir. 
this point, the writer called Chief Warner and advised him of the statement mentioned above. Chief Warner, after hearing this information, advised me to stay on the line so I could relate this information to Chief Holt. That's uh, actually Director Holt. Chief Warner's still used to back in the day when the chief of police was the highest ranking member of the department. They had changed that just a year or two ago, maybe three or four years. Very recent, they went from chief to director. So Chief Warner's just used to the old days. I did tell Chief Holt that I had heard, and he asked my opinion as to whether Hester was alive or dead. I advised Chief Holt that I felt that Hester was either dead or laying in such a position and playing possum that the people inside the house felt he was dead. He advised me to continue to monitor and to keep him apprised of any new developments. Prior to this statement was made, Lieutenant Tucson and Sergeant David Jones of security. Now, he says security. He's talking about security squad. Remember, that's the unit that investigates all police shootings and criminal allegations against police officers. They arrived on the scene, and we were able to incorporate the device from organized crime to the equipment of security that enabled us to record the transmissions coming from within the house. Now, they'll bring this up later, but just as a note, it's amazing all the things they think of they can use for this operation after it's been going on for 24 hours. Lieutenant Tucson was able to take the piece of equipment to the command post at Shannon School to enable Chief Warner and other negotiators to hear the transmissions. The writer then returned to the command post at Shannon School. The last transmissions heard by me was a male black, believed to be Lindbergh Sanders, mumbling, I'm cold, I'm cold, saying this several times, and then no transmissions or human sounds being heard. After arriving back at Shannon School, the writer was called into a staff meeting with the director and his chiefs, and they were brief as to what I heard, along with what Sergeant Kellum had heard. Again, it was pointed out that the writer's opinion was that Patrolman Hester was either dead or that they, or that they felt, meaning the court, he was dead and it was possible he was playing possum. The writer then resumed his position within the command post at Shannon School. Was the conversation of Lindbergh Sanders that you were monitoring being recorded? No, sir, it was not. Due to the fact this is a miniature receiver and only has an earplug to monitor it with, we did not have any other equipment at that time to adapt to this receiver to amplify the voices for recording purposes. Was the conversation that Sergeant Kellum was monitoring of Lindbergh Sanders being recorded? No, sir. Sergeant Kellum and myself were using the same listening device, alternating the person doing the listening. Is there anything else you would like to add to this statement? I can't think of anything else at this time. All right, folks, that's gonna wrap up this episode. We'll be back in a couple days, and I imagine on this next episode, we'll probably do another one of the negotiators' time logs, and then we're going to do radio transmissions 
So the radio transmissions were, I think we're somewhere around nine o'clock at night or so, or after 6 p.m. anyways. We're gonna do that and we'll continue in that vein till we uh, get to the TAC unit assault, which won't be too many more episodes and we'll be into that. I can't think of anything else to add to this episode here other than I, um, you wonder why they didn't think of some of these ideas like listening devices and whatever. Of course, it's kind of academic. They, incident never should have went this far anyways. But that's what happens when you uh, mix politics with police work. Same as can be uh, applied to what's going on in the world today. Politics does not mix well with police work. Unfortunately, the people that suffer are the citizens. In this particular case, it was a police officer. One thing else I failed to mention, that uh, title director that was created by the mayor so he would have more control over the police department because the director is an appointed position. That means the mayor can fire him whenever he wants for no reason whatsoever. Just tell him he's gone. So just keep that in mind. That plays some part in everything that's went on then and since then. Well, folks, I do appreciate it. Sorry about me getting on that soapbox. But uh, we'll be back in a few days, and uh, I will see you down the road.